Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us this afternoon at Film Scene in Iowa City, and thank you for joining us. Uh, if you haven't been here to our live shows before, please consider coming someday. You can come to these live tapings or catch them later on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website. And our website is international.uiowa.edu. Our topic tonight is food. We're proud to say that we're one of the kickoff events for the University of Iowa's Food for Thought theme semester. Our topic in this first segment of the show is food, imagination, and the power of memory. And it's my pleasure to introduce my guests. Just next to me is Linda Snetzlar, University of Iowa Associate Provost for Outreach and Engagement. Welcome. Next to her is Lauren Rabinovitz. Thanks, Lauren, for coming. She's a professor in the University of Iowa Department of American Studies. Thank you. And Chuck Swanson is known to many people in this area as the executive director of Hampshire. And uh, thank you for being here, Chuck. Thanks, Joan. Mm -hmm. So, Linda, I would like to turn to you first to ask you to tell us a little bit about what this theme semester idea is and why did you choose food? Okay. Um, the theme semester was really something that we devised to try to form this kind of umbrella topic that would bring a variety of disciplines on campus, departments on campus, colleges together with one kind of common idea. Mm -hmm. And food is one of those things that is um, very, very easy to sort of look at from a variety of perspectives and also um, a topic that everyone can kind of relate to because everyone eats and most people really, really love food. So that's one of the things that um, I, I think prompted us to um, really focus on food. I do want to emphasize that this is something that we are doing out of the Office of the Provost. Um, outreach and engagement is, is really uh, the focus of one of the things that I'm, I'm involved with. But um, the idea and the ability to do a theme semester is something that has involved many, many different people. And there are really two people I want to recognize. One is Teresa Mangum who is professor and director of the Elberman Center, and then also Doris Witt, who's a professor in English in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And they have done a tremendous amount of work to really make this all happen. Mm -hmm. And so if I understand it, the, the idea, you mentioned outreach and engagement. So this isn't really just within the campus or within our own small community. The idea is that all across Iowa and even beyond, people could become engaged in these ideas in this project. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Chuck, let me throw some questions down to you. I know that you've been involved in this from the very beginning as well. And um, I, I understand there's a play coming up that Hancher has commissioned. Yes. We're very excited about it. We're working with uh, Working Group Theater. And I would say about two years ago, we just came together with Sean Lewis, the artistic director, Jacob Yarrow and I did, and we decided that we wanted to do something a little more joyous. This is our fifth commission that we've done with Working Group Theater. And the other subjects have been pretty heavy. You know, we've had plays that have dealt with Alzheimer's, cyberbullying, you know, with the changing demographics of our community. And so who doesn't get excited talking about food? And so together we decided that we wanted to create a play about food. And Sean uh, goes about his work in such an interesting way. He really does very, very extensive research. And so we uh, work with the communities of Decorah and Grinnell. And he spent a lot of time in both communities, spent a lot of time over in western Iowa. 
And it's interesting, doing his research, he even worked in a cafeteria line in Decorah, and he told me that he made um, purple french fries out of purple potatoes, but he said these weren't very well received by the students. I don't think the students are very happy about that. He worked on a farm. He helped to install an electric fence on a farm. And he also went to a lot of food co-ops and had talked to a lot of farmers from various sized farms and also various backgrounds in terms of corporate farms, family farms. And now he's come up with this play and the script is done and it's actually a musical, which I'm very excited about. Um, 13 songs from the awful pretty and as you know, we don't have a home, so we're presenting in all these various locations. And we've never presented at the Johnson County Fairgrounds, but we're going to be in, I think it's Barn A. And so April 17th and 18th, and we're encouraging everybody to bring food. It'll be kind of a cabaret style, and uh, I'm just totally excited about it. Well, and I think the play is called All Recipes Are yes, Home. Yes, All Recipes Are Home. Thank all you. All Recipes Are Home. So that sort of gets to this idea of memory, kind of the power of memory. Everybody. It does. Um, um, how are you? You're a nutritionist, or you do research on nutrition and healthy communities, healthy individuals, and so on. Um, what have you noticed in all these years you've been working with individuals, uh, talking about healthy lifestyles, improving what we do for better long-term results? Um, people are very, very um, attentive to and possessive of foods they've loved from childhood, aren't they? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very important when we work um, with clients or patients um, to really sort of look at where they start um, and tailor uh, to say everyone should eat the same way never works. And so uh, that idea of really caring about what their culture is, um, what they care about in terms of food, what their comfort foods are is incredibly important. Well, I'd like to bring Lauren Rabinowitz into this now, too. Um, as I mentioned, you teach in the American Studies Department. And I know that you teach a course on food and food oh, and culture. Food in America, yeah. which is part history, mm -hmm. which means that it's largely immigration and migration history. Because uh, in looking at food and identity in America, we take it all the way back to the beginning, to the first contacts. But American food is unique. We, we can always sort of talk about techniques and name dishes of French food or Japanese food or Chinese food. But American food is really hard to pin down because it doesn't have the same specific styles, techniques, and identifiable dishes. What it has is a continuity of contacts and fusions among different cultures in the United States. So we talk about that through doing a lot of immigration, migration history. Um, the other parts of the history are also technology, changing technologies have dramatically altered the way we eat. And you know, we think about that a lot now in terms of locavorism versus the global reach we have for food due to advanced technologies. But also one of the things about American food, despite the fact that there are people who go hungry, is the expectation of abundance. And that has shaped food history from the beginning, from even why people came to the United States up to the present. So the course is part history, part we look at the business of American food today. We especially focus on meatpacking, which is the number one manufacturing industry in Iowa, and corn, as I was the number one corn producer. And then we end the semester with the students getting a chance to think about some of their relationships to pleasure in food. And we talk about food in popular culture, particularly the abundance of food on television. 
Wow. And so um, you have not only domestic students, not only U.S. students in your courses, but also international students. I have students from all majors and from a variety of countries. And I'm really sort of proud of the international students who come to the course saying, you know, I want to learn about American culture. I want to learn about American society. And they rightly say that the best way to get a foot in the door is to learn about how a society eats. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are some of the surprises uh, that you, what are some of the things you hear from students that have surprised you? I would say the thing, I've, I've done this course now since 2007, and I would say the one thing that is surprising but not surprising, I mean, it, it surprised me. Um, on occasion, we've been able to do taste tests, so we not only study with conventional methods and conventional materials, but I have been able to bring food into the classroom and I have 150 students, so we don't do it too often, or <laughs> I can't bring in too much. But when I am talking about the introduction of cake mixes, when we're talking about the late 1940s and the 1950s, and changes in women's relationships to their kitchens that continue to the present day, um, we talk about the advent of cake mixes and how women initially rebelled against cake mixes. And the students find that completely unfathomable, because they've grown up with cake mixes, and they can't understand why someone wouldn't want a cake mix. So we do a taste test, and I bring in a sample of a cake, same flavor, made from scratch, and one from, made from a cake mix. And the cake mix one is, is quite a bit sweeter and stickier, and the sweetness actually overwhelms most of the other flavors. And the students are readily able to distinguish between the two, but almost all the students say they prefer the, the box mix because it reminds them of the birthday cakes they had when they were children because their mothers made cakes from cake mixes, mm -hmm. or they got a cake from the local grocery store, which was made from a mix. And so, talk about eating healthy. Mm -hmm. they, pref mm -hmm. they prefer the one that has all the chemicals and the overpowering <laughs> sweetness, but that's not wrong. It's, it's again, it's because mm -hmm. of an association with happy memories and childhood birthday parties. Yeah. I, I seem to remember hearing somewhere along the way that part of this rebellion against um, packaged foods or, or foods that might even in the end taste really good, but, but a housewife at, in a certain period of time would have been embarrassed to present something that she hadn't uh, had some part in sort of originating. And so while it would have been possible to put absolutely all the ingredients into the box, they left eggs out because that way you yeah, had initially, to the... Initially, cake mixes, which were developed originally for, for the soldiers in World War II overseas, oh. but they were just powdered mixes, and all you had to do was add water. You didn't have to add anything. Yeah. Um, and the cake mix companies altered that formula so that you would put in eggs and oil mm -hmm. because the housewife, who was the general maker of mm -hmm. the cakes, would feel like she was doing something creative by cracking eggs. Yeah, it would give right. her an opportunity yeah. to participate <laughs> in a way that just pouring water in didn't. But it was yeah. entirely possible mm -hmm. to make a cake mix without adding anything but water. Yeah, but those yeah. didn't go. Yeah. Wow. Um, Linda, I know that you have some events that are coming up this, uh, this semester we should talk about, too. Yes. Um, on Thursday, the 22nd, uh, there is an event in Old Capitol, and um, that event is going to focus on agriculture, uh, ways of uh, producing foods in the past, and sort of what happened in terms of taking foods from the garden to the table. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderful event. Everyone is welcome to come for a reception uh, from 5 to 7. And this particular exhibit will be there 
um, spring through summer. And it's just a wonderful way, I think, of showcasing what um, has happened in terms of farming and food um, in Iowa over time. So would love to have as many of you in the audience today come as possible. And then a second event, uh, I'm going to be doing a um, session that um, is in the Levitt Center. It's the 32nd presidential lecture, and it will be about food, culture, and communities. So I'm going to talk about uh, the studies that I've done over time and why it is so difficult to tell everyone just exactly what to eat uh, what the rationale for that is, and um, I'll also just talk about some some really incredibly wonderful things that are going on in terms uh, of research today and what effect they're having on some very devastating diseases. So that's at the Levitt Center on February 22nd, um, starting at 3.30, and there will be a reception following, and you're all welcome to come. It's open to the public. Um, and then one more event, and this is in my college, the College of Public Health. We're going to be um, uh, doing some work with a community sustainable agriculture fair. Uh, this will be on the first floor uh, in our new College of Public Health building in the atrium. And it will last from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock on um, February 26th. And we would love to have you come to that as well. Um, that event, um, once again, is open to the public, but there will be a lot of um, communicating with farmers who grow food in this area and then ways in which we as consumers can uh, work with them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, this, obviously, we live in a rich, bountiful state. We have food all around us. You already uh, remarked upon the fact that uh, while we feel that there's food all around us, many people don't have enough to eat, even here in our community. And, um, uh, you know, your concerns are both about making sure people have enough to eat, but also eating the right things. Um, can you tell us a little bit from the point of view of American studies, um, what, what has this transition been within the last hundred years ago from people growing their own food in their own gardens and very rarely, perhaps, uh, buying anything that was pre-made uh, or anything other than from the local butcher and now here we're in this crazy global uh, marketplace, really, where you, you can get everything from, you know, very delicate caviars to, uh, you, you can get everything, it seems, if you have the money and you can drive to the, to the community where there's a store. What does that do to our culture? What has, how has it changed how us? Has it changed our society? Yeah. That's a tough and complicated <laughs> question. Oh. <laughs> um, certainly it enhances other aspects of our society in which we are a society of consumers and we don't identify with being producers mm -hmm. at all. Yep. That we identify more with what we consume than what we produce. Um, and for my students, I would have to say one of the things about the class that I try to work with is they're completely cut off from a kind of food chain. They have no, they don't really think about the production of their food um, when we talk about the business of American food, it's a real eye-opener for them to think about how their chicken is made or how, their, how the beef that gets into their burger, what processes those things go through. They have no idea. They have no idea what the ingredients are. That we're really, we take our food for granted. We take the abundance of it for granted. And 
that, um, but that I think is part and parcel of a larger identity of consumption and of sort of ready expectations of things, of instant gratification and that things will, will be there. Uh, I should say that the students are actually really eager to sort of connect back into the food chain and to realize that the story of food connects them not just back to, uh, you know, to other producers and other parts of the food chain, but it connects them to animals, it connects them to plants, it connects them to living things. I talked with someone as we were preparing for the show this afternoon who wondered if we would be discussing um, a vegan diet, uh, you know, whether, uh, whether someone may have a nut allergy or uh, need a gluten-free diet or prefer to live a, a in, in a vegan way. Um, I mean, these are things that are not such strange concepts to us anymore, I think. Uh, in popular culture, we're aware of vegan restaurants and uh, gluten-free foods and whatnot. Um, this is a positive change, I would think, isn't it? Because people are perhaps more aware of some of what food does for us in a positive way and how it can harm us as well. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. I, I think that um, consumers today probably know more about food and what's in food uh, because of labeling and a variety of other reasons. Um, but that really makes us probably more cautious, yeah. sometimes maybe more cautious than we need to be. Um, and uh, certainly a different world than it was um, when uh, we look back at history and what happened in the 50s, for example. Well, we'll be talking throughout the program about some of the foods that are, are new, perhaps, to our area. I think growing up in Iowa, I never saw hummus until a few years ago. <laughs> and um, we, we will have the uh, guys from Oasis on the program a little bit later. We'll be talking also with Kurt Fries from Devotee about locally sourced food. Uh, knowing what it is you're cooking, knowing what it is you're eating, and the pleasure of making it, the pleasure of, of uh, watching it transform into this delicious thing. Um, so I, I think the rest of the program will, you know, give us some very specific examples of what's new to our region here and how, how people, um, I'll speak for myself, I think that there is sort of a uh, uh, preconception in, in some parts of the world that the Midwest is sort of unexposed to things that are not, not even perhaps interested in learning about what it doesn't already know and that all we eat is jello <laughs> and, um, um, you know, um, I don't know, casserole at, at Church Sunday, pizza, whatnot. But, but that really isn't true. And even in small communities here in Iowa, you can find very interesting restaurants doing very creative and interesting things, very concerned about the blue zone and about uh, eating nutritionally and so on. So, yeah. An event coming up on February 2nd, Joan. This yeah. is uh, Mark Bittman, mm -hmm. who a lot of people have heard about. He's a journalist, and he is a, a writer for the New York Times, a food critic, and he's written a lot of books. And so this is going to be at the Englert, 7.30, and we're going to, obviously, we're going to have a food drive that night. Yeah. So we're encouraging people to bring <laughs> great, food. Great. And we've been working with a lecture committee, and that's one thing about this theme semester that I have really enjoyed is the collaborations and the connections. You know, to learn about, you know, what Lauren teaches, to learn about what Doris Witt teaches. Mm -hmm. I had never, mm -hmm. I've been here almost 30 years. Yeah. And to realize those sorts of things are happening on this mm -hmm. campus. Mm -hmm. And then to be able to connect with communities and mm -hmm. to meet so many people. This theme semester, and it really happened because Teresa Mangum brought us together. And the University of Michigan has been doing this for over 20 years. Oh, yeah. And so I really feel like this is a great way for the university to connect internally mm -hmm. and with our region and with our state. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be doing an event in Maquoketa, 
Hanch is going to bring in uh, Inti Alemani, a group from Chile. Wonderful. And we're going to use this as another way to extend the food theme semester because we're going to, aren't we, Linda, going to serve Chilean food? Wow. Um, that's what They're I've been told. They're a Fantastic. great group. Wow. So that's May wow. 10th wow. and 11th. Wow. Can I you sure can. One other yes. event this semester. Sure <laughs> <laughs> on, on April 17th and 18th um, during the day, the play is in the evening, the, the Friday and Saturday night. During the day, there's going to be the Food for Thought Symposium. And that is going to actually bring together a number of faculty from not only this university who are working on food, but faculty from other universities around the country who are specialists in food studies, but who come at it from different disciplines, from philosophy, from sociology, from environmental studies, from anthropology, from history. And so there's going to be three sessions on the 18th, one on locavorism, one on this global outreach that you were sort of talking about, and one on food and identity. And then we're partnering with the Pomerantz Center on Friday afternoon the 17th to have a session exploring careers in food. And um, all the events are open to the public, and the times and places will be on the website. And I want to mention Eric and Christensen from Linda's office have done a great job of putting together this website, foodforthoughtuiowa.edu, because we only talked about just a small fraction of the events that are happening. Exactly. So um, I know we have to wrap up this segment, but I can't let you leave the stage, Chuck, without getting an update on Hancher. When will the new auditorium be ready Thank to? You. Thank yeah, you, Joe. Yeah. The fall of 2016. We are probably about 55, 60 percent of the way there. For those of you who haven't gotten out of your car and taken a walk outside, I, I tell you, you've got to do that because I do that just about once or twice a week, and it changes daily. Mm -hmm. The team that's been put together has put so much thought into this, and I tell everybody it's going to be one of the finest in the country. Yeah. You know, we are just so, as everybody is, anxiously waiting, but it's not that far away. Yeah. We as a staff, I think, will be moving in in probably about a year. Wow. And then we're going to play with the building, commission it, mm -hmm. and we're going to be more than ready by the fall of 2016, and it's going to be an opening that you won't forget. Oh. It's going to be great. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. That's great. And, and uh, those of you who don't realize it, uh, you were sitting in Hancher yeah. Auditorium's oh. former seats <laughs> right now <laughs> here in film <laughs> scenes. So uh, I'd like to say thank you very much to Chuck Swanson, to thank Lauren you. Rabinovitz, thank and to Linda Snetzelar for starting us off today. Thank you very much. And please, all of you, stay with us for the second part in this series when we look at how we eat, what we eat, and how food creates and enhances our sense of community. All World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And to learn more about Film Scene, visit icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr, and for University of Iowa International Programs, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Hello, and welcome to World Campus from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of a three-part series on food, and uh, this time we're going to talk about how we eat, what we eat, and how we connect as communities around food. I'd like to remind you that you're invited to attend these live tapings uh, here at Film Scene. Otherwise, you can catch these programs later on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. For more information about Film Scene, uh, check out icfilmscene.org. 
so in this segment, I have three very interesting folks who are going to give us some perspective I, I know we're going to enjoy. Just next to me is Kurt Fries, the owner and chef of Devotee Restaurant and Bar in Iowa City. Thank you for being here, Kurt. Great to be here. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And next to Kurt is Colleen Tyson, a special collections outreach and instruction librarian at the University of Iowa Libraries. Thanks for coming, Colleen. Mm -hmm. And Kristen Porter is at the far end. Uh, she's an Iowa native and a creator of the food <coughs> blog, Iowa Girl Eats. Mm -hmm. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to throw this uh, first uh, set of questions to you, Kurt. You're uh, our chef. You own a restaurant that's a very successful restaurant here in our area, uh, an independent restaurant. And I know that, that you have lots of passions about food, about local sourcing, about creating, trying new dishes all the time. Mm -hmm. How did you develop this passion for food? Oh, wow. Geez, goes uh, pretty far back, I guess. Um, some of my earliest memories are uh, there was an Easter ham that we did every year, and it was my job at three and four years old to stand on a stool and stir the, the raisin sauce that my mom got the recipe from the Better Homes and Gardens cookbook with the, with the red and white checkered uh, plaid cover on it. I still, I still have that and still occasionally make that sauce mm -hmm. some 40 years later. Um, but um, at my house, food has always been uh, integral to what we do. Uh, it, it, is, it was very common for us to be... Uh, sitting around a Saturday lunch decide, talking about what we were going to be having for dinner and, uh, and who was going to make what and who was going to go to what store to find it. Or, um, and so it wasn't too surprising that I found myself uh, working my way through high school and college in the, in the food industry and um, making some discoveries along the way. And one of them is that uh, fresh tastes best. Simple enough. Uh, of an idea, but the fact is that the closer the source is to my kitchen door, the fresher it's going to be. I don't care how fast your planes and trains and trucks are. Uh, so that's what started steering me toward this idea of local food. And when I got into the business uh, to start with, which was uh, 1979, 1980, restaurants were judged at the time by uh, how distant and exotic their ingredients were. I remember New Zealand lamb was a new thing that everybody was very excited about. And what I've had the privilege of, of observing throughout my uh, now 35-year career in, in this industry is that it's switched completely. It's a full 180 to where now restaurants' quality is judged by how local their ingredients are. Uh, we've, we've, we've made some progress, yeah. I think. Well, restaurants. <laughs> Right. I mean, you, you we we've been doing our part. We Devotee's been around for 18 years, mm -hmm. and when we opened, we were the only restaurant in town that was buying anything mm -hmm. locally. One of the only businesses, New Pioneer Co-op, was the, was the other one, but they're a grocery restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, now, off the top of my head, I could quickly rattle off more than a dozen that at least buy something local, mm -hmm. and several that buy, that have as much of a passion as we do about it. Yeah. Was it hard at the beginning to find the, the uh, farmers who could provide <laughs> Yes, it was very hard. When yeah. I opened, I only knew one farmer. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a city boy, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, that, was, uh, that was Simone Delati, um, uh, formerly of the university and now retired on her beautiful farm near Wellman. And she introduced me to another who introduced me to several more. And now 
we have uh, more than 40 what we call devotee local farm partners. Mm. Um, people would buy some of them. We buy from them throughout the year, like James Nisley, who has uh, the sprouts and they're indoors, so he's he's always got those. Some of them we only buy asparagus from them for two weeks and then it's gone. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, in addition to local sourcing, you have also championed the slow food uh, um, movement. Yes. <laughs> slow food movement. I know Kurt has al also been involved in the slow food movement. I slow have. For, uh, yeah. Slow food is an international organization, uh, an educational organization, um, that was founded in the mid-'80s in Italy, uh, uh, originally as a response to McDonald's uh, deciding to open their first uh, restaurant in Italy, uh, and they had the unmitigated temerity of, to do it at the foot of the Spanish Steps in Rome, which is, you know, a lot like opening a hog butchery in the middle of Jerusalem. They, they were uh, incensed, and they launched a, uh, a protest. Um, and I don't know if you've ever been to the Spanish Steps, but it's a relatively small piazza, and they had a little over 100,000 people <laughs> flowing flowing through this yeah. uh, protest, where and they fed them all um, uh, penne pomodoro, simple pasta and tomato yeah. uh, uh, thing. Fed over 100,000 people this, this pasta yeah. thing, and nobody went into the, the McDonald's on their very first day. Yeah. And the founder, Carlo Petrini, he thought that was going to be it. He thought that was going to be the, the, you know, the one scream into the abyss, <laughs> and now he'd go back to his home in, in, in Bra and eat his wonderful food on his own. But uh, there, there was too much passion behind it. So a couple of years later, there was, a, uh, there was a gathering in Paris, and it became this international movement that they decided to call slow food, because in Europe, when they say fast food, they don't say it in German or French or Italian or Spanish. They say it in English. They call it fast food. So when they wanted to rebel against it, they used the English words and called it slow food. Uh, as a result, there are now uh, about 175,000 members around, around the world uh, in almost every country. Um, uh, the United States now has more members than Italy itself does, um, and the organization is doing great. I, I launched the first chapter here in in Iowa in 2000. Um, there are now seven chapters around the state, and I've lost count how many there are around the country, 200 and something. But the idea behind it, I mean, the, the, what, what do you think when you say, I, I want to be part of the slow food movement? Is it about making it yourself? It doesn't matter if it takes it's a, a little It's longer. about cooking. To, uh, no doubt, and um, I've come to the conclusion that America doesn't really have a food problem so much as it has a cooking problem. Mm -hmm. We've forgotten how, or we never learned, or, mm -hmm. or we think that it's um, difficult or, or expensive or time-consuming, and it's none of those things. It's, <laughs> believe me, if it was rocket surgery, I wouldn't have been doing mm -hmm. it my whole life. Mm -hmm. uh, but slow food is basically about uh, creating a, recreating a food system that is good, clean, and fair. And by good, we mean that it's good tasting, that it's good for you, that it's good for the environment. Mm -hmm. um, by clean, we mean that there's nothing in the food that isn't food. Yeah. <laughs> and if it wasn't food 100 years ago, it's still not food now. <laughs> and by fair, we mean that the people who produce the food should be justly compensated for the work they put into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And our current yeah. food system, for the most part, is none of those things. Mm-hmm, mm. We were laughing before this program. He said, you know, I might be the only restaurant owner you're ever going to talk to who will say that he's upset that people are not staying at home and cooking more. <laughs> and and uh, you may be singular in that, in that feeling. Yeah, I'm not a very good business owners, but <laughs> no, no, but uh, 
But I take the point. Yeah, we, we, we got sold a bill of goods. Um, uh, the American people did. The Western world did. Um, 60, 70, 80 years ago, something like that. Uh, we got tricked. We got, we got flim-flammed. I got bamboozled into this idea that cooking is a chore, like washing windows or doing the laundry mm -hmm. or something like that. And it's not. Cooking is, first of all, applying heat to the food is one of the very few elemental things that separates us from the rest of the animal world. Mm -hmm. um, it's a downright spiritual thing. It's, it's the most tangible way that we demonstrate our love to our family and our friends. Mm -hmm. And to blow that off, to, to feed our families in much the same way we fuel our cars, and it, these days with the same ingredient, mm -hmm. corn, <laughs> um, we, in a, I mean, in Iowa, we, we don't grow food anymore. Yeah. We, grow, we grow feed and fuel. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, thankfully, uh, Devotee and many other restaurants in the area have found lots of wonderful farmers doing the right thing in, in small little groups, but we've got, uh, we've got a political system and a cultural idea that goes in exactly the wrong direction. I mean, the oldest cliche in the world is you are what you eat, right? And there's, it's one of the oldest cliches because it's very, very true. You literally are what you eat. Your children are what you feed them. But if we are what we eat, then most Americans are fast, cheap, and easy. And that doesn't, it, that's not a way to, to, build, a, to build a world. We've got a, we've got a world where um, any child born after the year 2000 has a one in three shot of developing early onset diabetes before he's old enough to vote. If they're among min minorities, one in two. Now, I don't care how you reform the, the healthcare system, no healthcare system can tolerate a population that's half diabetic. It can't be done. So we've got to start talking about prevention rather than cure. That's a good, good start for this conversation. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and and uh, Kristen, I think I, I might go down to you next because you are, I, I introduced you as a food blogger. You are obviously a gal who loves to eat, who loves to cook, and uh, you care enough about it to have started this blog up some time ago. And, uh, and now it's more than a private passion. You have followers all over the world. Uh, tell us how you got into this in the first place and what keeps you going. Yeah, um, well, I got into food blogging because I was bored, <laughs> actually. Um, I got married in 2008 and had spent the year prior very busy with wedding planning and found myself married and with a lot of time on my hands. Um, and at the time, I uh, had been reading a lot of health and fitness blogs, um, had a passion for healthy eating and fitness. And the blogs that I was reading were written by women who were very similar to myself. And so I thought, you know what, I, I'm passionate about this topic as well. I feel like I have something to contribute to this space. And so I started the blog. It was on a free WordPress um, uh, theme and slowly it, ch it, it uh, changed from a fitness kind of health uh, focus to more recipe focused and and the reason why I, tr I uh, kind of focus more on recipes is because like you mentioned people have really forgotten how to cook and I saw um, a lot of people in my life who 
were getting takeout and going to McDonald's for, for dinner and feeding their children fast food. And it was like, you guys, this is so simple. Like, it's not as hard as you might think it is. Uh, so the focus of my blog and what I've really chosen to focus on is uh, simple, wholesome meals that you can prepare in usually 30 minutes for, for certain under an hour uh, using ingredients you can get at the grocery store. No special internet orders required. No multiple trips to here, there, there, there. Um, uh, in season, I mentioned uh, food that you can feel good about cooking and feeding your family and your children in particular um, and, and taking pride in what you're making and feeling really good about that. So that's what I focused, um, that's what I've chosen to focus the blog on for uh, the, the past three, four years. Well, I know uh, recently, uh, last few years, you discovered that you yourself had uh, an allergy to gluten, that you, you have to eat gluten-free now, and that at mm -hmm. first this was something you had to kind of wrestle with in terms of what you were saying and doing on your blog. Yeah, I uh, was diagnosed with celiac disease last year after um, my son was born, and I was really totally thrown for a loop. I thought I had to quit food blogging. I was like, you know, what, is this, what does this mean for me? Because um, I, I just didn't know what eating gluten-free meant. And I had heard it, um, you know, obviously everywhere. You know, the term is, is very popular, but very few people, including myself last year, knew what it meant. And so I um, very quickly became educated in what eating gluten-free meant. Um, and that simply means no wheat, barley, rye, um, but what it does mean is eating fresh foods, so meats, vegetables, fruits, grains like rice, quinoa. And, and so I really focused on what I could eat, and, and the things that I couldn't eat were very, it was a very short list, and it was foods that I shouldn't be eating anyway. It was um, cakes, pastries, traditional pasta, pizzas, which is fine for an occasional. I love them, don't get me wrong, and there are amazing gluten-free pastas. But they're foods, but they're, the point is, is that there's so much um, food that I can still eat. And so one of uh, the things that I've really taken pleasure in this past year is educating my readers and, and anyone who will listen that um, gluten-free isn't a fad. It's for some people, including myself, I don't want to be dramatic, but it could mean life or death. Um, it's something to take seriously, and it's, it's not about deprivation at all. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, we'll go now for a moment. I want to talk a little bit about recipes that are in the University of Iowa Special Collections <coughs> collection because Colleen is going to talk to us about that. And these uh, recipes that are in special collections go back hundreds of years, don't they? Yes. Many countries. Yes, absolutely. So the University of Iowa Special Collections is home to the Zathmary Culinary Collection, um, the bulk of which all came from one collector, Chef Louis Zathmary. Um, more than 20,000 cookbooks now. Um, hundreds of handwritten, um, people's handwritten cookbooks from hundreds of years of history, um, basically stretching from the year 1499 to the present. And it is a collection that we keep up now today by, by buying the new cookbooks as well. So <laughs> everything from a Latin cookbook from 1499 to Hannah Hart's cookbook from YouTube um, today, uh, and everything in between. And uh, that... That gives a lot of material to draw from <laughs> to talk about recipes. Um, one of our projects that's been going on in the past few years is that we digitized all of the handwritten cookbooks and put them on our site called DIY History. Um, and people from all around the world have been helping us transcribe them. 
and uh, figure out what the handwriting says in these pers people's personal cookbooks and history. And that's really brought out a lot of revelations about the history of recipes and the way that we eat. Um, it's been, it brings up a lot, of a lot of ingredients that we don't use quite as much anymore that you would see again and again in 19th century cookbooks. Um, calf's head stew <laughs> comes up again and again, you know, and that's definitely not something that we think of as a typical family meal these days. Um, but the other thing that's been really interesting in looking back at historic recipes is to see exactly what the two of you have been talking about is some of what was lost that we're trying to help find again. You know, the recipes will say, bake in the usual way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's exactly it, you know, and each of these recipes was someone's grandmother, and so we, we have that connection to it, too. You know, when we look at back at recipes, even just a couple of generations ago, there's already some knowledge that's been lost, you know, and so, but there's so much that we also do know and that we can find out again by, by testing it and bringing it back. So it's, it's been really fascinating to see the way that people can take these historic recipes and find a connection to it today. Whatever it's a handful or a sprinkling of or mm -hmm. something, which which means that you you either need to try it a few times until you get it just right, or you need to have some way, as an experienced um, chef or cook, to figure out what that actually means, right? Do you, when you when you come across a recipe like that that gives you very, you know what the ingredients are, but you're not quite sure what the mix should be. Sure. Where do you start? And, and this goes back to what I was talking about about people knowing how to cook. You. Anybody can follow a recipe, but knowing how to cook involves having a certain set of basic skills. Um, knife skills, uh, knowing the difference between roast and braise, you know, um, how to make a stock. Uh, the French word for, for stock is fond. It comes from the exact same Latin root as foundation. It literally is the foundation of Western cuisine. So, and most people don't know how to make it. But yes, I had, I had, uh, have a, quite a few recipes from ancestors of mine, no notably my, my father's mother, um, who has one recipe that starts with take a bottle of cream. No indication whatsoever as to how big the bottle of cream is. Um, and there's a one for her uh, Thanksgiving cranberries uh, that says simmer until they look about right. <laughs> one of my favorites. Um, and sadly, I mean, she died when I was only one. I never, I never got to know her except through her recipes. Mm -hmm. So I had to, uh, had to figure this stuff out for myself. But as I was saying earlier, this isn't difficult work. Any, anybody can do it. I'm living proof that anybody can do it. And it, it saddens me that people, that there are so many people who don't find passion in this. Well, I, speaking for myself, it can come from terrible disappointment. You have, if you're a cook who doesn't consider herself terribly proficient, but you think, you know, I can do this, and you, and you start something, and you spend hours trying to make it, and maybe it's sort of okay, but not very good, or you realize somewhere along the way that something in here just didn't work out right. It's very, for me, it's very disheartening, and I think, oh, you know, you do have to be uh, a rocket surgeon, and as you said earlier. There's this horrible um, thing that we have in this country um, and I don't know what the Latin term for the phobia would be, but it's a, it's a fear of food. 
And I've never understood this idea. People are afraid to try new things. They're af afraid of any sort of food that isn't, nor you know, normally what they grew up with. You know, it's uh, stereotypical Depression-era Iowa food, brown, hot, and plenty of it. And it, what's the worst thing that could happen if you try to, if you taste something that you've never tasted before? The worst thing that could happen is you'll have a flavor in your mouth that's disagreeable that you're not real fond of, and it's going to last about 15 seconds. That's the worst thing that could happen. There are so many other things in this world to be afraid of. Don't be afraid of food. Take chances. Taste new things. Try, try stuff out and go ahead and try to make uh, cheese at home yourself. It's not as hard as you think. And there's so many other wonderful things that you can discover and things that you can share with, the, with your family and your friends and the people you love. Yeah, uh, and what, what's the craziest thing you've made, would you say, Kristen? The craziest thing I've made? Well, um, I really like to be inspired by my travels. So my husband and I went to uh, Italy. We went to a couple places in Italy in 2009. And I came home and was inspired to make um, homemade pasta with um, seafood pasta a la scoglio, I believe. Is that how you would say it? <laughs> That's how I said it in my mind. I'm surprised I could speak English. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> I do. Um, so that was like, you know, I'd never made homemade pasta before, you know, it, but it's like, just try. What's the worst thing that can happen? I waste, you know, half an hour in flour and an egg and some oil and salt, you know, um, but it turned out really well and um, for my first try anyway, and it's just, you know, I, I think I mentioned before the pride of trying, and even if it didn't come out, the, you know, the way I had in Italy, it came out pretty darn well for my first try in my kitchen in Iowa. What are the, uh, the questions you get? What kinds of questions do you get from your readers? Um, I get a lot of uh, new cooks, too. So I just had someone comment on my blog just the other week. They said, I have never had soup um, not from a can. And never. And um, from a couple of other things she said, I gathered that she was probably in her 20s. And she had never had soup that didn't come from a can. And she tried one of my, um, my grandmother's chicken noodle soup recipe, and she said it was the best soup I've ever had. And she goes, I don't know why I've been scared for so many years. Uh, you know, this opens up so many doors for me, and I was just so excited for her. Um, I, made, I made soup at home just a couple of days ago, and m my wife walked into the house, and she said, there is nothing in the world that smells more like home than chicken soup. <laughs> and that's the thing, too, is I think um, – you know, we're sharing recipes, of course, but we're also sharing memories, like you touched on in the last panel. Um, and, you know, for me, I always try and include a story as to why I'm, I'm sharing this recipe. And it's not just because I'm not sharing the soup recipe because it's winter and it's really cold and you want something warm when you get home. I'm sharing it because this recipe means a lot to me, and here's why. My grandmother, my grandmother had it ready for me and my family every time we drove in from Ohio. And, and I knew I could count on that chicken noodle soup every time we got in. And yeah, it tastes really good, and your family's going to love it, but um, maybe you can start making new memories with this recipe, too. What I find interesting is that sense of memory and connection also comes through even when the person's cookbook is from 200 years ago. When you go page by page by page, you get a sense of that person through the food that they wrote down, and, uh, and that absolutely carries through from then to now. Better than walking a mile in the other person's shoes. Eat, eat the food that they eat. That's, if you are what you eat, then knowing the other person means knowing their food. There was a 
a favorite quotation from a Chinese philosopher named Lin Yutang who said, what is patriotism but love of the food we ate as children? Food is home. Food yeah. is love. Yeah. Now, in respect to these uh, pieces we have collected at the university libraries, who can see these? Uh, absolutely anyone. So we're open from 8.30 to 5, Monday through Friday, with evening hours on Thursdays until 7. And all you need is the inspiration to walk to the third floor in the main library. <laughs> and, uh, There's an elevator. <laughs> you don't even have to take the stairs. <laughs> And uh, all of them are cataloged in our catalog that you can access online, or just talk to one of the librarians, and we'll help you find anything from 1499 to the present. Um, it's interesting the mix of people that come in, everything from students working on historic projects to local chefs looking for a recipe, um, and, and everything in between, um, from genealogists to, to local cooks. Yeah. And it's Disneyland can, for people like me. Oh, I'm sure it is. <laughs> yeah, Wonder, can, can individual people actually touch these materials? Or, or are some of these so special, so prized, that you can't really even let them be held by? Yeah. Oh, no. You absolutely can touch mm -hmm. them. Um, I mean, we're, we're a living collection. Mm -hmm. you, know, uh, you can't go back to the shelves. We bring them out one at mm -hmm. a time for you. Mm -hmm. But aside from that, no, they're there to be used, to be researched, from um, to be part of our everyday life that you can learn from. Mm -hmm. um, People could copy out a recipe, or you could even Xerox it, maybe? Yep. So we'll, we'll Cameras, expect some of phone. these Shathmari collection. Uh, oh, sure. We, we wrote them up. Yep. Shameless, yeah. shameless oh, plug time. Mm -hmm. uh, the magazine yes. that I publish, Edible Isle River Valley, we, we wrote up the collection there the last spring, I oh, think yeah, it was. Yeah. Great. And I want to talk to you after about another idea I've got. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we're about at the end of this segment, so I want to say thank you very much to Kurt Fries, to Colleen Tyson, and to Kristen Porter for joining us. Really wonderful to talk to you all. And I hope that all of you in the audience can join us for part three in this program, uh, which will be uh, coming up in just a moment, where we're going to talk about interconnectedness between food and culture. Uh, World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And you can check out Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. I'm Joan Kerr, and thank you very much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City, and we're happy to have you join us for part three of this series called Food for Thought. In this section, we're going to be looking at the interconnectedness of food and culture. I can't wait to introduce uh, the guests we have in this segment. First, though, I'd like to invite all of you to join us for the live programs if you haven't yet been here in this wonderful venue downtown in Iowa City. Otherwise, you can catch these shows later on UITV, YouTube, or iTunes. Information about upcoming shows as well as links to archived programs can be found at international.uiowa.edu. And you can learn more about Film Scene at icfilmscene.org. So as I mentioned, we're now going to turn our attention to the cultural resonance of food, a conversation about food and ethnicity, and food and the expression of culture. And there's a lot to talk about here. And joining me are uh, three very interesting guys. Ari Ariel is right next to me. He's a visiting assistant professor in the University of Iowa Department of Religious Studies. And he is also a trained chef. So. That's that's an interesting little twist on his background. We'll find out more about that. Next to him is Naftali uh, Stramer, 
co-owner of Oasis Falafel in Iowa City. Thank you for being here, Naftali. Thank you. And at the far end, we have Ofer Sivan, um, of co-owner of Oasis Falafel in Iowa City, and we'll also talk about your interesting prior career uh, interests um, before you became restaurant owners in just a minute. But Ari, uh, let me start with you. Um, so you're teaching here in the Department of Religious Studies. And I'd like to know more or less what you're, what you're teaching in terms of your sort of religious angle and um, Middle Eastern studies and so on. But how does food play into all of that? How do you, how do you bring your interest and your background in food into uh, your more scholarly studies? So I guess in general, my work is on Middle Eastern studies and Middle Eastern Jewish communities. Mm. Um, so I work on Jews mostly from the Arab world. Before graduate school, I went to culinary school and worked in restaurants for a few years and at some point decided <laughs> the Arabers were terrible and it wasn't a good lifestyle. So I applaud all of you who actually do it. Uh, it wasn't for me. So I went back to graduate school and now I'm trying to mix these two loves by focusing on Middle Eastern studies, but also on food and food ways as part of that. Everything that is encompassed in the way people eat and how that impacts their lives. Mm -hmm. So it could be you know, whether they use a knife and fork or it could be the latest food trends. It really, it, there's a broad range. Yeah. Well, you guys are all connected in the sense that um, the kind of food we're going to be talking about tonight has origins, I think. I'm, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm thinking of these as having sort of Middle Eastern um, origins, the foods we're, that uh, Oasis Falafel has provided um, here for the reception tonight, some of the foods we know, uh, you know, the hummus, the, the beautiful breads that you've brought, and very, very nice um, fresh vegetables and so on. Um, uh, these all, all originate in what we would think of as Israel, Palestine, Arab cultures, North Africa. Where, where do these foods that we're, that we're uh, likely to talk about, like hummus, for example, where do they originate? Is there a way to figure that out, or, or do people fight over who was the originator of people a particular <laughs> project? People certainly fight about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we know that they originate more or less in what we consider the Middle East. We don't have a lot of cookbooks for the region. So the, the last Arabic language cookbook we have before the modern period are from the 13th century. And what happens in between there gets a little tricky. But in the 13th century, there are recipes for dishes that are pretty similar to the what we consider hummus, so mashed chickpeas. Uh, the one I'm thinking of now sort of brings me back to the last section where there, it's not a, a real recipe. By modern standards, it says take chickpeas, sesame paste, a whole bunch of nuts, a whole bunch of spices, mash them up, roll it out, and leave it overnight. Right? So it's not exactly what we think of as hummus, but it's, it's connected. And how that transforms into the 20th century dish isn't clear, but it is pretty clear that it happens in this region. Mm -hmm. Well, so food is, a, is an expression of ethnicity or identification or community connection. Uh, uh, how does that work in, in the Middle East? In the Middle East, it's tricky because the, the national borders are so, mm -hmm. so new. So um, until World War I, this was all the Ottoman Empire, or most of it was the Ottoman Empire, and a lot of the foods were shared among different regions in the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. After borders are established with World War One, then you, then the fighting begins, right? So there's debate about whether homeless is Lebanese or Syrian or Jordanian or Israeli or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let me just toss it down to to you two guys who have <coughs> been friends for some time. Um, decided you're going to open up this restaurant, and you introduced some foods that many of us in this community hadn't really had much familiarity with before. And uh, Naftali and Ofer, um, as we get going, could you just tell us what you how you met and what you had been studying or working in at that point? Well, uh, I'm a high-tech guy by 
by profession, computer engineer. And uh, I was in, in my profession, the high-tech profession, uh, from 1981 to 1994, when we opened Oasis. And in 1993, one thing led to another. I left my job and was looking for another job in high-tech. And I know of a... Uh, because I know his dad. And as Israelis, when they move to one place to another, the first thing they find out uh, when the area they are moving into, are there any Israelis over there? So what I did is I called the rabbi and I said, hey, is there any Israelis in town? And he said, oh yeah, there's a guy, Danny. <laughs> and uh, you, should, you should talk to him, he's there. And Danny is Ofer's dad. And, and you know, we... I came for an interview in here. We were living in Boulder, Colorado, and Danny came and actually met me at my hotel and took me for a round, and we became good friends. And that's how I met Ofer. I think he was in Kentucky at this time, but he went back. He came back to Iowa City, and this is how we met. Uh, so when I left my uh, high tech uh, position after so many years. Actually, it was his brother, Ori, uh, they came, and we were sitting one day at the Pedmall, and he, they said, you know what, there's no falafel. And, and there's no good falafel in this, in this city. Why don't we open a falafel business? And I was joking. I said, no, you're not serious. And, but, but they somehow inserted this bug into me. And a year later, we, you know, after a lot of hustle and, and bustle, we opened Oasis. That's, that's how we started uh, this thing. Uh, my idea was that the reason it will work is because Iowa City is a very diversified community. People from all over the world. And I said, those people must really love those changes in food. It's, it's something new. There was actually no Middle Eastern food, no good Middle Eastern food in here. There are some are now, but still not a lot. And, and it, yeah, I, it worked. I told you when we talked that our first check came from our health inspector who, who helped us and he came and said, you know guys, you guys will s really succeed. And I said, how, how do you know? It's like, I, I don't even know what I'm doing right now. <laughs> you know, my wife was joking about me doing falafel and cooking and, and he said, the city needs something like this. You know, it's, it's something that, that, and we started it, it worked. So neither one of you had background as a businessman procuring the raw ingredients for these foods, setting up a yeah, legal restaurant. I mean, I, I had just graduated from engineering. Uh, That's the connection. <laughs> barely. <laughs> barely graduated. So, um, and then my brother, you know, suggested the idea, and I've lived here more or less my whole life, um, and. It just right away I was like, yeah, you know, we need falafel here for sure. I grew up, my, my mom grew up in Iowa City. Uh, her parents were from New York, and my dad was from Israel. And so I, I grew up here in Chicago, and, and we'd go to Israel and eat falafel and come back, no falafel. Then we moved to Chicago, and there was falafel, but it was terrible. <laughs> so every time I go to Israel, I'd eat as much falafel as I could. <laughs> we'd, go to, like, we'd go to lunch, get falafel my dad, and my brother would take a nap. So I like take some money out of his wallet and go get more falafel because I knew it's coming back. So I need to get it while I can. Um, so I didn't realize that I was actually doing research in, <laughs> in falafel. But th there's, I mean, you know, we're like, just by coincidence, we're like European Jews. 
which is not what falafel is like a Middle Eastern Jews or Muslims or Christian that you know, but it's not from the European. Um, but that culture kind of, you know, being from Israel, we take that. We also serve like the chicken noodle soup at Oasis or the matzo ball soup. But that's like a European dish. Um, but you know, it starts to people don't really differentiate, and maybe they shouldn't. You know, who cares really what it's what it's from? Definitely not here. Uh, you're saying there's no cookbooks, right? And the reason is because like people like my mother, who used to cook something, and somebody asked her. She actually one of her friends was really offended by her, and then she did some some dish, and somebody asked her for the recipe, and she said, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, What do you mean you don't know? And I don't know, I'm just taking, you know, she used to cook from something that she didn't even like, and she never tasted it, but something came up perfect. And, and then she told this friend, I don't know, and they thought she just doesn't, doesn't want to give them the recipe. <laughs> and, and so, but and then again, going back to what Rafa said in Israel, it's, it's like a culture of so many, think about taking seven, eight, nine countries, putting them together in like one, this small area of New Jersey or something like that. And you have cultures from Morocco and, and even the Northern Africa countries are so different from each other, you know. Morocco and Tunisia and, and people are proud about their food, especially in the Middle East, you know, because, you know, my, mine is the best. You know, we know, for example, I know a Lebanese, actually one of my Lebanese friends that says, I will not eat at your restaurant because you have pocket pita and we only eat falafel in Iraq. You know, so that's, that's part of this. I know what I'm doing. Mine is the best, and that's how the Middle East is, by the way. Yeah. Israel is actually very interesting in that sense. It's similar to what Lauren was saying earlier about American cuisine, where there really is no <coughs> traditional Israeli cuisine, mm. right, because it's such a new country. Mm -hmm. But like the U.S., you have immigrants from lots of different places coming in yeah. in Israel in a very short period of time. So it's sort of a cauldron for the mixing of culinary mm -hmm. cuisines and cultures. Well, and then, you know, you bring foods like this to a place like Iowa with people who, who might love it once they taste it, but at the very beginning, you probably have to, I don't know how you educate people to, to try a, a new food. Is it just that it smells so good that anybody who walks by your restaurant? Free samples. Free samples. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But we, we were wrong, and I think we underestimated how much uh, native Iowans like our food. And, but you see that, like, you know, 20 years ago, sushi was like exotic, yeah. and now it's not. Yeah. Um, it still might be considered upscale, but it's not like way out there or anything like that. Um, so we've, you know, I mean, really, we sell our hummus in Cedar Rapids, which is probably less diverse than Johnson County in Des Moines. So it's really popular. People don't, people don't, look too much into the ethnic, they don't really care. They just want good food, nutritional, and, and that's good, really. It is a sampling. You have to get people to sample it. And one of the ways, you know, is, you know, we do a lot of caterings, especially in the university, and, and people will try it because this is what they have, you know. They get lunch and they get lunch from Oasis. <laughs> like, you know, what can you do? You know, you have to try it. <laughs> And then they say, oh, wow, it's good, you know, and they, you know, we, and we tried, for example, at Oasis, we tried to make, uh, like, a marketing, like, a, a logo, you know, we, we tried to make it everywhere, and we put it on our hummus, so our packs that we sell at the university, we had a, a, a woman coming last week, and 
He said, I'm eating this stuff for years, and I never knew that you guys have a restaurant in here. I just found out. But, but she was eating this, this food. So that's how you know, we're trying. People come into the restaurant always. Last week, somebody says to offer, like, it's not like my mother was, or my, my grandmother is doing evils from Lebanon, and, and offer tried to persuade him, okay, try this and try this. Yeah. So, you know, we educated him a little bit. And it's all about education. Particular recipes would be very quickly, very easily, because there are lots of ways, I suppose, to blend the ingredients for hummus or for. Uh, I seem to agree, luckily, on pretty much everything. He doesn't like tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, he's a pretty good business partner. <laughs> no, but yeah, we, we had to, to run the recipes by, by a few people. Mm -hmm. Our first falafel was a disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, Danny Offer's dad did some, you know, uh, some reception in his house, and <laughs> we tried our first falafel, and we didn't realize why those falafel balls are not balls, and they just fall apart. And, <laughs> and I remember my wife was looking at me and said, seriously, you want to open a restaurant? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, second batch was, you know, a little bit better. The third one, I got all my Israeli friends, and I said, listen, guys, you try it, and if one of if one of you saying that this is great, I'm going to kill you. I need criticism, and which you don't get a lot from American people, but Israelis are very crit <laughs> they know how to criticize. <laughs> and it was good because you know we got feedback, and and yeah. you do stuff when you open a restaurant. The beginning you do stuff like you like, yeah. and you have to realize it's not about you; it's about your customers. Yeah, like our first falafel was really spicy until. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and the first time I realized it is, and I love spicy food, mm. honey and curry, which everybody yeah. knows yeah. in Iowa City, uh, came to me and said, you know, it's too spicy. It's making me, it's not good for me. And I said, really? And so we realized, okay, it is. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we have to tone it down. And some people will say, okay, we need it more spicy. Here's the hot yeah. sauce. Yeah. Just put it on it. Yeah. You know? yeah. But you, so you have, it's not about you again. It's mm -hmm. about your customers. Of course, you, you're the one with the passion and everything, mm -hmm. but it's about your customers. And this is what I think works with us, is you keep yeah. looking at our customers and say, what do they want? How do mm -hmm. they want it? Mm -hmm. And the recipe involved, you know, we also, uh, uh, you know, a re really big part of our recipe development is our, is our employees. Oh, yeah. You know, we encourage our employees to eat. We give them free food as much as they want <laughs> while they're working. Yeah. And they need to tell us, okay, this is not good, or you know what, if you add a little bit of this, maybe this will make it better. So mm. well, the big falafel debate in the Middle East is fava beans or chickpeas. Right. Oh. And in Egypt, where it's called taimiya, it's almost entirely fava beans. And as you go farther north, chickpeas become more, more dominant. So I w do you use both, or do you? No, we uh, use, we use chickpeas. chickpeas. chickpeas and there's also cilantro versus uh, mm. parsley. Right. Ah, and you use? Cilantro. cilantro. We use cilantro. But that can be like, that can vary on the block. And some, some now there's high-end falafel restaurants in Israel where you can get dill or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Ari, we were talking a little bit before the program, and, and one of the topics I thought we would discuss was the relationship between food and religious uh, identity in Israel, just taking Israel as an example. Um, what's the breakdown? What are um, so Israel's kind of an interesting example. There's... there's Jewish food and there's Israeli food, which tend to mean two separate things. Jewish food has come to mean something similar to what it means in the U.S. So Ashkenazi food, gefilte fish, things of that nature. 
and Israeli food is much more broadly based on Middle Eastern food. Um, and then there's a the question of religious observance. So until fairly recently, it was assumed that most public food in Israel would be kosher, but that's actually less and less true. So a couple of years ago, 2010, I think, a doctor in Israel published a book called The White Book, which was a, a book about pork cookery um, and some of the new sort of hip Israeli places in Tel Aviv use shrimp and things like that on a normal basis. So it's still part of Israeli ethnic identity food, but it is, it's transitioning as Israel transitions and becomes more or less secular depending on the, the timing. Yeah, and you said that the, the Israeli uh, government is sort of interested in promoting a new Israeli cuisine. Yeah, the Israeli government for the last three or four years at least has been promoting new Israeli cuisine. Um, also in 2010, I believe, if I'm getting the date right, they sponsored an online course with the New York Times on new Israeli cuisine, so you could take it from any place in the U.S. or I guess abroad, it was in English, um, sort of trying to, to stress both the connections to older biblical foods and to biblical ingredients and to Jewish religion, but also to modern cuisines and to show how Israeli cuisine had developed you know, using modern techniques and French techniques and also Middle Eastern ingredients. So it's really become a fusion, um, as sort of a, fusion is I guess a bad word in the, in the food industry, but a fusion in a positive sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so let's talk about food and, and community. I mean, clearly we've heard a little bit about how from one block to the next you can use different ingredients or a Lebanese guy and an Israeli guy might have a different <coughs> concept of whatever. But, but generally speaking, food and community, what when you do the kinds of ethnic studies that you've done, um, what is it about food really that con connects people so in such a deep, deep, deep way? It's partially memory. I mean, yeah. similar to what you were talking about earlier, everybody remembers their mother's food and this is why you can never really compete with what your grandmother or your mother cooked right? at a restaurant. Right can't do that and probably shouldn't. Um, so it's partially about memory. It's partially about national and ethnic identity, which have become probably more important uh, in the last century than they ever had been, right? So um, it's, be it's become important to every country that sees itself as modern and progressive to have a national cuisine, right? So all the European countries promote their cuisines, and now Israel and lots of countries in the Middle East do the same. Um, and sometimes that leads to conflict in an area where the cuisines are basically the same. So. A few years ago, the Lebanese tried to get a trademark on the term hummus in Europe, for really? example. Um, didn't work. Didn't work. Mm -hmm. the, <laughs> the regulations are very good at, at you know, things like Parmesan or, or Champagne, where you can regulate a, a certain area or country where a food is produced. But you can't exclude other people. And, and Lebanon was primarily trying to exclude Israeli hummus production. And of course, Syria and Jordan and Palestine and other places saw themselves as natural hummus producers. Um, more recently, Sabra uh, has been trying to to get the FDA to trademark the term hummus in the U.S. So really? that trademark is the wrong term here, but to regulate what could be used and packaged as hummus. Yeah. Um, and all of that then ties back to national cuisine, so people are, are take a certain pride in, in their food as opposed to the food of the other. Yeah, sure. So, so how would you feel if Sabra was able to well, we trademark it? Well, I think what Sabra is trying to do is deregulate it because oh. their product is very low percentage chickpeas and tahini, which are the expensive ingredients, which are also nutritious. Yeah. So there's mostly oil and water. Oh. Um, so <laughs> if they want to do that, I'm probably against it. I mean, yeah. if they said it was 40, 50 percent chickpea and tahini like our product, mm -hmm. um, they'd probably go out of business. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how they do it. They just it's brown, whipped oil. Yeah. 
<laughs> and um, you know, they market it as healthy, and I'm, I guess that benefits us indirectly because people think hummus is healthy, which mm -hmm. it can be mm -hmm. when I make it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but when they do, it's, it's no good. Yeah. I mean, so what are the ingredients in hummus, the, the, the basic ingredients in the hummus you make? You don't have to tell me. <laughs> oh, are there some secrets There's that you can't chick reveal? Chickpeas, tahini, which is a sesame paste. Um, really, that's the only essential. I would say olive oil. Um, and then you can get pretty creative after that. We keep it pretty tame. Lemon juice, water, salt, garlic. I should probably add that hummus is, in fact, an Arabic word for chickpea. Yeah. Oh, All right, it so oh. it's sort of traditionally the dish is hummus bitahina, meaning hummus in tahina. tahina, right? But we've come or, to use hummus as a shorthand for yeah. that. So it's, part it's of the gripe of Sabra is, uh, and I'm certainly not siding with them, I, I agree with you completely, but they're <laughs> complaining against things like black bean hummus or white bean hummus, oh, which they're saying don't make much sense if hummus is chickpeas. But their statement, their legal, you know, their yeah. petition to the FDA also includes lots of chemicals and other well, it's like things they'd like to include. Kebab, kebab means beef. Yeah. So you say like a chicken kebab, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but, you know, so the meaning changes. And in America, oh, yeah. kebab means a skewer, yeah. which is actually the shish, yeah. like shish kebab. So yeah, yeah. you're just as yeah. Yeah. Locals, so right? Somebody so asked me if it, how it's gyros pronounced, and I, <laughs> it's like gyro, hero, gyro, gyro. I say gyro. I asked Doctor Science. Do you know Doctor yeah. Science? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said it's pronounced gyro. It's <laughs> <laughs> good enough for me. You know, you, you know, asking about food and community. Yeah. We move, when we moved to Iowa City, every Friday we used to meet at Danny's house. All of the Israeli community, which is not a lot, but a few families. And what did we bring? It was all about food. Like mm. everybody brought something and we met together and we, we ate. And my kids had three boys, they're all out of the house. All they remember from those things is Danny schnitzels. You know, it's like the food that he used to eat at Danny's. So it's all about food. And Kirk was saying that his family is, you know, talking at lunchtime, what are we going to do at dinner? We do the same thing. We meet with the boys and we eat something and say, what do we eat tomorrow or in the morning? Or where do we eat this? And and that's, it's everybody's, everything is surrounding about food, and, and it's a great, you know, mix together, and, and yeah. speaking the community. But uh, about food and religion, I, I grew up, well, mostly in, I would say moved here when I was three, and my parents were Jews, but not observant. And despite this weekly Jewish stuff, I mean, we ate bacon all the time. <laughs> Sunday especially was like bacon day. So we moved to Chicago when I was 10, and I went to a Jewish day school just kind of to try it. And I'd never heard of kosher. I mean, never came up, never heard the word before I was 10 years old. So I, I was like, I can't eat what? <laughs> like, so that was a surprise. And maybe that's just an Israeli thing. Um, but, you know, the, the religion and the culture don't always line up exactly. Yeah. And especially the history of, of the Jewish community of the U.S. is sort of, is all about what foods are acceptable and what not, and how do you fight for or against kashrut, right? So there's a famous banquet in the 50s, I think, called the Trafe Banquet, where uh, the uh, Reform, uh, the Organization of Reform Judaism says it has this banquet that's full with non-kosher foods, oh, right? Really? Just sort of to, to make a point against. Yeah. So, so Jewish history is, is sort of full of this yeah, yeah. religious... One of the reasons you said that, that more like, like pork or, or is coming into Israel and, and, and about this book is there was a big immigration from Russia. And it's huge, like 20% of the country 
games, like a million and a half views, well, you know, when the Russian opened the gates. Yeah. And, and some of them, you know, brought in, it's like, hey, we don't need kosher. We didn't, never heard about kosher, like Ofer said. Yeah. Wasn't allowed even to talk over there about, oh, sure. you know, being Jewish or religious yeah. or something like that. So yeah. they wanted the, this food. And hmm. smart businessmen, they come in and they, <laughs> <laughs> they put it up mm -hmm. and they, they bring the supply. If there's yeah. a demand, they will do a supply. And yeah. you have to be tricky. The government is not allowed to yeah. allowing to raise hogs on, on government ground. So you do, there's a lot of tricks yeah. how to yeah. overcome this. But keep the hogs raised off the ground. It's yeah. not legal to have yeah. pig on the ground in, yeah. the, in Israel. Right. So they put on pallets. So it's all about, again, it's all about where the people are coming from, mm -hmm. what do they eat at home, mm -hmm. what do they want, and, and that's, that's right. how the right. community survives. Right. So, Ari, do you miss uh, your chef days? or? I do. I miss yeah. the adrenaline of the kitchen a little bit, uh, but I still cook all the time, so yeah. I guess so my, my wife benefits what the most. What do you love to cook? What are the I'm, I'm a carnivore. I'm a, I'm, yeah. I'm a meat person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and do you cook uh, recipes very often that you think are, or foods that you think of as ethnic foods from your family's past? I do sometimes. My father's family is from Yemen. Ah, um, yeah. So occasionally I, I have a craving for that sort of mm -hmm. food, um, mm -hmm. things that are probably not very familiar, but it's sort of a paste made of fenugreek that's kind of spicy that I really love. Yeah, or, that's um, good. And lots yeah. of spicy food. Yeah, <laughs> great. Wow, this is such fun. Thank you so much. Big thank you to you two guys from Oasis for catering, uh, along with Devotee, the, the food we had earlier tonight. And thank you so much, Ofer Sivan and Naftali Stramer. Thank you. And thank you, Ari Ariel. Pleasure to have you all here. And that's uh, all for our program tonight. Thank you all for coming. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And you'll be able to catch this program again on uh, iTunes, on YouTube, and on uh, UITV, uh, also at the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. Uh, I hope you can join us next time on February 3rd. We have an interesting topic, which is tobacco, pot, and the public interest. And I hope you can join us. That's February 3rd here in this space. And um, I'm Joan Kerr for International Programs. Thanks very much, and we'll see you soon.